0: Discover how we can make your education and your goals for the future a reality. Visit us at umgc.edu. That's umgc.edu. Certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV.
1: This is Animation Nights New York Animator Interviews. My name is Yvonne Grinkovich really appreciate you guys taking time to uh, check this out. Thank you to Animation for Adults for letting us be a part of their channel. We'll be doing interviews with our animators and I'm really looking forward to getting to know them a little bit better. First up in our series is an interview with Hanna Soral. And uh, the sound is a little bit bouncy, but it's a beautiful venue and it's a really nice place to meet. So uh, please Enjoy. Thank you very much for for participating in this interview.
2: Thank you for having me for this interview. It's really a pleasure, and you're doing a great event. It's fantastic.
1: <laughs> no, thanks so much for that. Um, yeah, we have our uh, yeah next event coming up. It's going to be really. Good. We're actually in Maiden Lane right now at 180 Maiden Lane. So that's uh, the ambient noise that you hear.
2: <laughs> and there's the artificial grass here. You know, we're sitting yes. on. Yes,
1: we're lounging on it now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we <done> <laughs> Or the picnic too, <laughs> But that, we should have done that. We Next can still, time. We can still move over. <laughs> um, so where did you grow up?
2: I grew up in uh, Tübingen, which is a, a kind of like a university town, medieval university town near to Stuttgart in southern Germany. In Swabia, it's called the region. And actually the interesting uh, story in, related to animation is that Lotte Reiniger, the animation film pioneer, spent the last year of her life in Tübingen, and she left her complete, actually at that time, but was her complete heritage to the town of Tübingen, and there's a museum now. And so at the age of 14, 15, that was when she actually... Uh, passed away mm-hmm. uh, I was already quite familiar with, with her work and that was already an early influence for me and it kind of set me on the path of animation in some ways
1: that's amazing because I was wondering that that was uh, one of my questions actually I, I wondered uh, that's an incredible connection so that's that obviously that's a huge influence for you and you can see the, the similarities in the work especially uh, with your more recent film Sailan <laughs> Shai. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes precisely
2: yeah <laughs> Which is also another interesting parallel because uh, Lotte Reiniger was, then she was creating uh, her film Prince Ahmed, which is the first surviving animated feature film in in animation history. Um, She was much inspired by Southeast Asian and Chinese uh, shadow puppet play. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm teaching in Singapore, uh, I found that was a wonderful opportunity to somehow bring things full circle and create something which is, if you will, a fusion between the German Lotte Reiniger influence and then the local art traditions right from a place where I'm living now. So that was, uh, a very, very interesting and fascinating artistic project for me.
1: That's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah, I love, um, I love that portion of the film and, uh, Chai when you have the 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 puppeteer. Like, shall we help our hero, <laughs> right? And it breaks from yeah, the animation
2: think, yeah. to yeah. It's kind of a breaking the fourth wall thing oh, there. Completely? Yeah, yeah. So that that and actually that was that was one idea uh, that um, came to me quite early on. I have to say in the storyboards to kind of bridge between the world of animation and the world of a traditional shadow puppet play, which is called wayang kulit. And so we thought, what can we do? And I. That seems to seem to be a very natural uh idea to do that and surprisingly i mean i'm not really a visual effects expert but um we pulled that off with comparatively simple means in terms of uh making that uh quite convincing and it worked out pretty well i have to say
1: oh no it was absolutely convincing because it took me i just sort of rack my brain (laughs) and um think like is it wait is this a puppet piece, (laughs) which would be fun, and honestly, they're so very related, you know, and and there's so much uh, 2D puppet animation done in digital...
2: Right. and actually what what was part of the whole artistic concept was really to think about okay what do we keep in terms of limitations like real puppets would have and what do we expand in terms of possibilities what is possible in animation so we deliberately didn't uh, engage with all the possibilities of animation but we kept some elements from the original shadow puppet play like this very sudden flipping over of a, yes. the puppets which is an idea that comes from the Original Yankoolit, so and that was uh, a very um, interesting and uh, also sometimes challenging process to to make the right choices there.
1: Yeah, no, that's that, that's, that's fascinating, and um, the sort of self-imposed limitations. That's something I know you've talked about before with something like the Lego Movie, right? It's um, uh, creating in this time where you have you know limitless possibilities, um, sort of thinking about clarity of mission, right, within the, within the project and clarity of message and then picking and choosing uh, limitations just for the for each project right for each project
2: I think that's very very important particularly because now we're looking at basically really limitless possibilities so uh, the danger is that you get lost within these limitless possibilities and if you're just randomly choosing and picking from both without a concept behind or without also deliberately stripping away some of these possibilities for a reason that is then uh, it can be that you uh, in the end come up with a piece that is really lacking cohesion and uh, a clear artistic vision and I think that that's also a message I'm trying to send out that I'm teaching to my students that is really more important than ever I believe to have a a unique vision and something that really uh, really Reasonably selects certain options from these limitless possibilities
1: right no that's it's so important no that's fantastic um did you do a lot of so you talked about your uh early influences obviously did you do a lot of drawing and stuff it's just as a child and did your? i'm always curious
2: about <laughs> Yeah. Your parents in that? Co- complete yeah yeah they were always incre- incredibly encouraging i mean I very often tell people about that that actually uh what is amazing we we're, we're three siblings and two of our are animators and one is a musician and so uh, we were always encouraging of artistic careers and then really then I mean like most of my my fellow animators colleagues um, of a similar age and I think generally speaking I was drawing since I can remember. So I was first starting uh, copying these zoological uh, so, so encyclopedias, drawing the animals and then drawing my own comics and basically um, the first step for really getting into animation was actually comics. I was doing comics all through my uh, early I mean from the age of 8 I did my own comics and then then I was a teenager I did these these fanzines which were kind of exchanged at that time still because it was uh, at that time that was uh, the early 80s um, to mid 80s and then they were still exchanged by snail mail between different people different comic fans artists all across Germany and then that was uh, the equivalent of now, you know, opening your Facebook account. That was really, I mean, you you went to the, the mailbox in the in the morning and looked if there was something in there and if there was a an envelope with a new fanzine that was really exciting.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, they're coming back now as well. Have you seen? Yeah,
2: I, I heard about. Yara Saw some, you know, so it's actually interesting that that also what I noticed with my students that with all of these virtual, you know, like. Uh, environment, completely digital environment, there seems to be a certain, certain longing or yearning going back to something that is really uh, tangible and kind of something you can, you can touch and you can also, because I think in a way, It might be a little bit more precious because it's really an object, and you can really see it. And I mean, I'm wondering: is it just me because I'm really old, or is it just really something that also has a real value to it? And and uh, um, students and younger people still still uh, appreciate that. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, it's surprising. I saw someone on the train with one, and I thought, my goodness, like this is it's really a thing. And I've had a couple of conversations with uh, some college students who I don't. It makes me laugh because I was also. So involved uh, in some some uh, zines <laughs> particularly it was backwards in Athens, Georgia there are a lot of them.
2: Right, right. And I still I still actually last year uh, somebody uh, took the effort and wrote a uh, almost like a scientific dissertation about this age of fanzines in, in, in Germany back in the eighties because Interestingly, a lot of these people who were involved in that scene back in the day are all now in various positions really... uh I mean, have made it, if you will, no, in the kind of in the animation slash comics slash illustration scenes, mm-hmm. and they're either editors, comic artists, professors. So a lot of these people really followed that 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 early uh, hobby into made it into a profession, and and that's kind of like also an answer to your question about where you're involved early on with 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 drawing. I think most of my colleagues I know uh, they were.
1: Yeah, yeah, do you uh, still uh, keep a sketchbook now with you at all times, so that, yeah kind
2: kind, kind of uh, not really that i 'm really diligently kind of uh, uh, keeping it or always carrying it with me, but there 's a funny anecdote. I had a, a university seminar just before I came here, which was more about administration and kind of um, more formal things and What I started doing in the course of a seminar, I started uh, drawing caricatures of all the other, you know, conference participants. And first I was hiding them and then somebody came by and said, oh, that's uh, so-and-so. I said, well, yeah, but maybe you might not like it. And then, but then... uh, Slowly but surely all of these made the rounds and everybody wanted to have a copy in the end so I mean basically uh, whenever I can um, engage with drawing it just happens that I do
1: yeah no that's excellent that's excellent do you uh, do you use uh video reference at all or is that something I'm just curious um, if, if that's something cuz some people don't you know what I mean and and then if you're in your your backgrounds uh, comics and obviously you're you're amazing uh, you're dr- amazing draftsman
2: <laughs>
1: um, so but do
2: you use a video reference now for a pro- actually little? I have mm-hmm. to say. I mean, it depends a little bit, really, on the the style mm-hmm. that is required. What I what I do is more frequently that that. I mean, at times when something is more more complicated in terms of some kind of uh, physical process or kind of. Uh, then I sometimes uh, shoot myself or quickly shoot a, a a friend. But it's it's actually quite rare because I mean a lot of my work is very stylized. Mm-hmm. So I can I can actually get away with a lot of things or also it's even necessary that I move away significantly from reality and take take these liberties. Right. And I find it's also it's it's a very um tricky thing with live action reference, particularly then I also work with the students that um it's very, very important that you use it the right way and that you really use it as a, as a basis to understand things rather than unless you're doing something hyper realistic there. It's really, really necessary to be, uh, so naturalistic, uh, to make it convincing. But in general, I think it's important to be able to exaggerate and to kind of really move away sufficiently from live action reference because otherwise it might end up looking stiff or not convincing not exaggerated enough not fluid enough so it's it's a double edged sword sometimes right. and it very much depends on the style you're using
1: right no definitely and um, I know you've touched on on that before sort of use of uh again like per project like use of uh more stylized uh you know creation of movement cartoony movement uh versus you know super realistic
2: I, I think it's just like one thing there, there, I think the, the artistic intent is, uh, most important. So in that sense, I'm not ideological or ideologic at all. So I think if, if really the artistic concept of a movie, let's say in visual effects, really requires that you have to create a vision or an, an impression that something is believable and it fits that world, then of course you would, uh, Use whatever you need to uh, achieve that certain impression. But I think then it comes to animation in its purest form or our animation as it's very often used in, in, in independent animation, then, um, i'm some somehow surprised at times how much uh artists uh self limit themselves by just really being trying to be too literal too naturalistic and not really using that 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 beauty of a line of action so i mean i I mentioned that I recently just interviewed John Maker and I saw in many of his uh films there is this uh Line of action quality, there something is really reduced to the essence, and it becomes almost pure animation, um, which is also, for example, very uh, beautifully demonstrated in that Fantasia 2000 segment, Rhapsody in Blue. Yeah. So the Eric Goldberg uh, design based on Al Hirschfeld drawings, and I think that that fluidity, that that fluid quality, is just something that that is very unique to animation, and and. Uh, Sometimes it's important to reduce to the max to achieve that very pure form of animation. Yeah,
1: no, I understand. And um, so then, how um, do you have a? What's your process to sort of divorce yourself from that video reference? Then, is it a matter of thumbnails?
2: very much i mean basically then 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 i i mean it 's always about redrawing yeah so and and uh, that means when I look at the reference, I would just really try to figure out okay what 's really going on there, how is the weight being shifted in that certain if somebody's getting up, what is important is to understand how is the weight shifted in in the different positions um, so how is the next momentum being gained but then I translate that definitively in my, into my own thumbnails and the second part of the process is actually then to very often use a very Initial thumbnails as a basis for for keys and for breakdowns because that's also something a mistake I very often find with with um, students who just start with animation that they uh, redraw their their thumbnails in a way that all the the freshness the spontaneity gets lost and then there'll never be and I tell them I mean look I mean even if you work on the computer I mean at least use these as, a, as an inspiration and blow them up and kind of really use them as uh, something that reminds you how expressive your poses have to be and how imaginative your breakdowns would have to be to uh, achieve, uh, to keep that freshness from the start.
1: Same thing happens in CG, right? It becomes, uh, it gets mushy. Like the, you, it's easy to lose your keyframes.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that is, that is something there, there, I mean, I also supervise now a lot of, uh, CG projects. I mean, also for my own work, but also primarily then I'm, then I'm mentoring final year projects at our university. So that is very often one of the key things to remind, uh, the artists, be it, be it professional artists or students that they really have to push the the CG animation and and uh, of course it, sometimes you get all of these um, problems but increasingly less so and that 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 the rigs might break or something like that and it, it, particularly with CG you get technical difficulties but it's important to try to overcome these for a better artistic result.
1: Do you uh, I mean obviously there has been a lot of uh, technology since. Um, say like Fantasia the original Fantasia there's a lot of technology that's been created that's uh, created shortcuts for us um, I'm just curious uh, so which of these shortcuts are you most thankful for? <laughs>
2: Oh well, I, I always say, I mean, definitely one, one of the things I'm most thankful for, I mean, I'm still one of those people who had to, in the beginning of his career and as a student, had to dabble with real cells. <laughs> and then uh, one thing I, I am so happy that it's gone is that the dust oh. that collects in cells and then you have like eight cells on top of each other and in the end of a day, at the, end, at the end of the day you will have just like all of this dust collecting and the cleaning was always a nightmare and you never got it completely cleaned and I think to work with an unlimited number of layers and with no loss. That is one of a big benefits uh, of uh, the computer-based 2D animation uh, and uh, stop motion, uh, when it's flat stop motion. So that certainly is one of the things. Uh. Other than that, I have to say, of course, uh, what is wonderful is that what you can do now with um, digital animation is you can keep a richness of of, of patterns, for example, in digital 2D, digital cutout, um, and you can still animate in quite sophisticated ways uh, using certain tricks and shortcuts. So that's very nice because, of course, I like coming from a design point of view uh, because I'm. For my films, I think the design is just as important as the animation. Although I really love animation, I really, uh, it's very important for me that it's nicely animated. But it was previously, in the pre-digital age, very often a challenge to combine a very intricate graphic design very rich graphic design and then full animation and that has become certainly easier
1: right yeah um, you're specifically I'm thinking of uh, the cold heart you use uh there's more of a, a, a very, there's a very graphic element, obviously, of the characters, and then, um, you know, intentional use of color and scale change to sort of, uh, designate power shifts, and, uh, and I'll, actually, you're welcome to speak to that a little bit. It's a uh, terrific film. <laughs> but, um, the, there's almost, it's almost like, uh, it is camera work, um, but it's also, uh, The character, the animation, and the scale is pushed so far, um, uh, and in such an effective way, you know, to tell that story.
2: Well, I mean, thank you for the nice, kind words about the film, and I, I really think that is one of the films I really felt I wanted to get done. So it was really something that I felt I really wanted to push. Uh, this as much, as close to perfection as I, as I could. And this was also a fairy tale. It's a famous German fairy tale. I've been fascinated with since I was a little kid. So I always had that idea in my mind. One day I want to make a film of it and there have been several live action versions just recently there has been one last year but there has never been an animated version before and so far that's the the only one and indeed um, what was important to me artistically with the film was to really use scale, use color to really express emotions to express uh, certain dramaturgic elements in a way that support the story and really to take out all stops to really uh, work uh, in a way that really doesn't consider a realistic approach but a very expressionist approach in using shapes, colors, movements to support the expressions or to express the emotions of a characters. What is um, important to know about the color script is that I was so lucky to be able to work with Hans Bacher, uh who did the color script for the film, and Hans is my colleague in, in NTU in Singapore, but he's also a world famous animation Production designer who worked with Disney for many, many years and he started working actually um, in international animation if I'm correct with Emblin. Uh, back in the 1980s on movies like Balto and then later on went on to, uh, join Disney as a production designer for movies like Aladdin, The Lion King and, uh, I think most prominently in terms of his involvement Mulan, Mm -hmm. which is a film which is almost exclusively based on his design work. And, uh, so it was a great, uh, um, privilege to have him on board. and uh, he did all the color design uh, for the film. And it was really uh, our shared intent to use color, as you already said, as uh, an element in the film which really completely reflects the story. So that really has dramatic changes there. Um, we're using very few uh and kind of like very expressive color schemes and everything goes along with the way the story moves so when it becomes more dramatic more uh powerful or violent you know the reds and the violence the violets dominate uh then then again if it's melancholic there's more blues and and greens but it's hard to really describe that in words because uh that sounds easy in theory, but the way uh, Hans pulls it off in his colors is just really amazing. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, you always have to... Uh, make two things happen at the same time. One is kind of a harmonious color concept, but also uh, to pull off sufficient contrast in the colors and to also combine colors in such a way that they are at the same time conflicting and harmonizing, which is Seems to be almost impossible, but but he pulls that off beautifully, and I think throughout it's a great support for the storytelling.
1: Yeah, I also um, the character designs too, and how you deal with characters versus environment are really interesting because um, there's a real uh, depth in some of the camera movements and a lightness to the characters, and, it's and all then Android. yeah, no, it's amazing, Android. and um, and then in uh, other times there's a, a claustrophobic kind of feel the characters become embedded in the environment and the sort of outline uh, of the character in the environment it's really interesting um, there are just so many different uh, you know contrasts uh, different t- variables you know like going on in the film and, um, it's effective
2: <laughs> it's, it's great I mean thank you so much I mean you have such <laughs> a deep understanding of, of a film you know I mean also like it. I mean, as a creator one is very happy you know when then one sees that what you have in mind as an artist also is being understood and appreciated by the audience or a reviewer, and that that is fantastic. I mean, the the idea was indeed to make the the backgrounds also a character, if you will, so that they become part of a storytelling, because that is one of the things there. I think in the traditional way of. Um, storytelling for, particularly in feature animation is there's a separation between character and and background and I think that is kind of a uh, psychological element or kind of uh, an artistic uh, attitude or uh, approach which might still hail from the old separation between cells and backgrounds whereas today in computer animation that doesn't exist anymore But on the other hand, what I think is one of uh, the the big uh, advantages of 2D traditional or 2D digital animation still is that you can change anything at any time at your will. (laughs) So you're not really, it's not necessary to rely on a model which has been built virtually, but if you want to ch- the, the background to change in a certain way, then you can do it at any time, so you're completely free. But, of course, redrawing the background all the time, so that, that's quite a, a nightmare in terms of work. <laughs> so And that was certainly one of the reasons why this film took very long. I mean, from, from script to, to finish, it was eight years. Um, but the, the, the production time itself may be about four years. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's also half an hour long. And maybe one more thing that that is uh, interesting uh, to think about um, then we look back through the history of uh, of 2D feature animation or we look back through the history of uh, Disney just as an example, you would always find two different approaches. One would be uh, that the characters are very different from the backgrounds in terms of the style. So you got these lushly painted backgrounds without outlines um, and the characters are outlined with flat colors. But then there's films that, for example, 101 Dalmatians, (laughs) there you have actually uh, a congruence between character style and actually also uh, the background style. Because in this case, both were sharing the same uh, design qualities, and I think... Another thought with the Cold Heart was really to create a world, a seamless world, where everything really kind of fits together, belongs together, and uses both background and character to tell the story.
1: That's that's great. Yeah, I know, it, it definitely works. I mean, it's a beautiful film. Um, and it's really, it's a. It's a it's a true credit to you to make a half an hour because as you know you know the longer the films get the more challenging it is to. <laughs> I, I know I was actually I was
2: actually uh, quite quite thankful in the end that 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 film uh, despite the length still enjoyed uh, a very successful festival run and and won quite a number of awards precisely because of that reason because obviously a festival programmer uh, and I've been on also on both sides of a uh, fence you know also being in selection committees uh, repeatedly yeah. through the years so of course I mean like if there's a half hour film that means at least three hour films have to go <laughs> and that is uh, a tough call to make yeah. for any festival programmer and on the other hand I thought and and that is something that I still believe is true, that story the minimum amount of time you need to tell is really half an hour. Actually, the, the source material easily can be used for a feature film. And uh, we we managed to, or actually it was me writing the script together with a script advisor, we managed to to bring it to the half hour by really asking ourselves, what is the essence of a story? What is important? How can we tell this story about somebody selling his own heart for money. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah. Uh, how can they bring it down to 30 minutes and still make it work? And hopefully it, it worked out fine.
1: What do you think the importance of mythology is for today's society? Like, are you involved with, you know, comparative mythology? Um, you know, you, you tell all these stories from different cultures and use these... enhance these stories with uh, animation. Um, but I'm, I'm curious to know, like, what... Uh, maybe your mission might be with all
2: of this I, I, I'm not sure if I have a mission I mean but I think what I mean it's actually it's a it's a, it's a two-part answer uh, maybe we have to cut it later yeah so we will see uh, so it's a two-part answer basically because uh, on the one hand I I for me it's simply it's a very emotional success because I was always fascinated like I guess many people are with with mythological stories or with myths, with uh, sagas, with fairy tales. because. But I think the reason for that is that there are sim- simply many, many archetypes which remain valid through our time. So, I mean, if you take the story of a cold heart as an example, I mean, it's basically about the power of greed and the temptation of, of greed and how... Actually, somebody who is at his very heart, a good-hearted soul, literally gives away the heart, sells the heart just to become rich and as if we look around, I mean uh, that always remains sadly, very contemporary and um that that idea resonates throughout the ages and will probably never age or go away you know one would hope so but it's it's probably not the the case and um and it's also besides these really really deep deep reasons i think there is a playfulness at work in fairy tales and myths that appeals to the majority of people, appeals to the, the child and the man or the grown up, if you will. So, and it's just really, um, it offers the potential to engage in something which uh, transcends your your daily or your mundane existence and and I mean you could look at that negatively, but uh, if you take the example I just mentioned, it also still reflects reality, so you ha- can have it both ways and so it's a it's an endlessly fascinating topic for an artist for that very reason, and of course also. In fairy tales and myths, you get these incredibly uh, intriguing images of fantastic creatures, fantastic landscapes, other worlds, and so forth, and you cannot help but want to illustrate it. And the other thing is that, indeed, I do engage quite a bit also as a researcher with adaptation and particularly with with adaptation for animation so i indeed do a lot of comparative studies but Interestingly, um, it is if I really look at it I see more communalities between with between cultures when actually separating elements. Of course, each culture is different and it's good that it is, you know. I mean it's really important that, that this has been acknowledged. But what I find very often is that there are certain topics, certain stories and motifs which appeal across cultural barriers. Mm-hmm. And so I find it very interesting usually starting with a creator, interviewing creators, then they um, are adapting such stories to find out about their own approach and to see what motivates them to, to adapt certain stories. What do they leave out? Where are they faithful to the source material? Where do they deviate and for what reason? What choices do they make for visual development and so forth? That That is, I find, something which is endlessly fascinating.
1: And did you, did you want to um, mention your the project you're working on now, the, the book that you're working on?
2: Yeah, right now I'm 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 writing a book uh, for Focal Press, which is about adaptation for animation. Um, and for that book, I have now interviewed quite a number of uh, famous animators, like for example Ishu Patel and uh, John K. Maker, uh, among many many others. Also talking about some of my own work, which is largely um, uh, adaptation for animation, and also talking to animation scholars like John Alberto Bendasi and again John Kmaker who's both a scholar and an artist and famous at both. <laughs> uh, so um, and I've that is very very interesting because uh, by doing so I gain a lot of insights in the different approaches but also in the communalities why uh, that, that, that different artists share and why they are indeed fascinated by mythology and fascinated by fairy tales and and literature as well. So there's also a whole range of um, adaptation source material covered in this book, which uh, uh, kind of ranges from modern poetry to classical fairy tales to uh, Asian mythology and many, many other different uh uh potential literary, literary sources. Also Shakespeare is a big big topic there. Uh Shakespeare plays that have been uh very frequently animated throughout animation history. Well the world of stage is a really terrific uh, piece too. And that was also an idea to, to make some, some fun of course, you know, to be play with to play with shapes in mm-hmm. animation for the design to, to reduce to the max but then also to kind of um, visualize the irony that is actually inherent in, in the text because I think there is something... Obviously, there is a kind of uh, a dry wit to, to the text, of course, because uh, it's, in a way, a very laconic description of human life as a whole, but as such, it is so true. And then... Um, I was just trying to to add on the words by the visual commentary instead of just really kind of illustrating it and really to, to do something which uh, takes on a more universal meaning by being as... Uh, put it in a, another way to avoid being too literal and to really, by using very basic shapes only... Mm-hmm allow for identification, again, if you will, across cultures and across uh, cultural barriers. I
1: enjoyed also the sound design for that piece, too, like even the fire. (laughs) Uh,
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's always good, you know, like if if it is uh, funny when it's supposed to be funny, it helps, you know. Sometimes the other way around can also happen, but Yeah. And it's also like what is what is uh, I was also lucky in that respect that with Samuel West, a really great Shakespeare uh, actor and director, actually was 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 providing uh, in a way a very British way of narrating that tale because I mean for some reason I wanted to have the text and narration being very Shakespearean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and still, he has this great, you know, underlying irony mm-hmm. to it, which is also very British, you know, in his delivery, which also adds another level, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, kind of, uh, yeah. And it's it's short, I mean, for, for once. I think maybe that was my, 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 my uh, antidote or counter-therapy <laughs> to the, the cold heart, you know, that, I mean, then you made now it's a while ago already, the film came out in 2013, but still okay, let's do something short you know, we did 30 <laughs> minutes, let's do one one minute and 30 seconds you know, and then we're done also to make the lives of festival programmers yeah. <laughs> a little easy, bit easier easy, <laughs> to 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 yeah, yeah, <laughs> easy to program yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> I would say, yeah, the Cold Heart did sort of sit in the queue for a little
2: while, like, what will we do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, so I mean I know that, that from other festivals but then all the more I was extremely happy to see that that it was acknowledged quite quite a bit, so now it has um, almost 100 festival screenings, and and I still think, you know, it's still one of the films where when I look back, well, good that I did it, and good that I mean, it, it I got funding for that, but it still cost, as it always, it cost a lot more money, but I mean, still something there, there I think, you know, great that I did it, I'm so happy, and I'm still happy with the outcome.
1: I'm curious how... What advice you might have for uh, people in, coming into the uh, professional world as freelancer, um, like pitching uh, internationally or just pitching in general, or getting? Because I know you know it varies. It depends on sort of where you live sometimes. And I've actually talked about this uh, briefly, and and whether or not there's funding. But you know, obviously, you know here in the in the US, we you know it's you have to. You know freelance and you know figure it out however you can you can't really um there's not a lot of funding like from government and stuff but um but uh with regard to pitching i mean i think that's always a, a good question to ask uh it could be you know applicable it's something that's not really taught i, I think in, in a lot of programs
2: right 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 i mean uh one of one of the things uh before we even get to pitching i think one of the things uh, that is really important because I see this very often happening with with students when you advise them on their first career steps um, it's important to be open be flexible that means there's not only one way but there's many ways and they're not mutually exclusive. So very often that thinking, uh, the thinking uh, with young students or beginners might be that, okay, I have to achieve this and I have to do take these certain steps and then I have to make a decision for one or the other. That is true in a certain sense. That of course you cannot be good at everything in the world. But on the other hand, um, you can combine to a certain extent a full-time position with you know getting your your the foot in the door with uh, with freelancing with moonlighting. I mean, one of the big, 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 big important um, uh, advice uh, I can give is that you have to engage as early as possible with with uh getting commission work so it's very often a big misconception that once you get your degree you step out of the door and the world is waiting for you right. which which sounds very funny in the first place but it is something that um if you want to make a living as a freelancer I think it's tremendously helpful to already have at least a few pieces being uh, published or being commissioned during your studies because that will help so much when you go in the next steps of looking for work that people will take you seriously and it kind of, you get out of this vicious cycle that somebody doesn't trust you because you haven't really done anything that has been published and so forth. That is one thing um the other thing is or the other things are it's uh very very uh basic advice um don't be overly distrustful of, of people because, I mean, there are so many stories circulating how how people have been cheated and have been, you know, like, and of course, um, you have to care pro bono, at, uh, pick pro bono work, for example, very carefully, but um, if you don't have another job waiting down the line... It's always better doing something than doing nothing. The worst thing is just sitting around, biting your legs, should I do it or should I not? And then the opportunity is gone. And what I also find is if such opportunities show up I mean it could be a competition it could be that a professor introduces you to somebody else and says okay maybe this is a chance really go for it, jump at it uh, don't wait forever don't be too hesitant and I think what is one of the most important things is in terms of getting jobs is of course word of mouth uh, that doesn't always work I mean uh, when I look throughout my career is that uh, Many, many different approaches have worked. One could really be back in the day, it was just really sending uh, video cassettes. Now it would be email and links and so forth, but still you have to follow that up usually with a phone call, even if it's something I completely understand people don't like to do because who wants to get on the nerves of people and so forth. <laughs> But um, it's very important to be persistent and to try uh, to slowly um, get one job after the other. And as I said, sometimes it has worked for me that I was recommended by somebody else. Sometimes a fellow student or former fellow student was looking for people to work with. So that's another important thing, really building networks, keeping these networks going. And sometimes, really, it was the real cold calls, acquisition. I sent something somewhere, and I got lucky. Once, I remember, for German television, um, I was just sending something there. Uh, the integration of cartoon animation into a live-action series was required, and that resulted in a 70,000 DM mark at that time commission, which really there was no big... Plan to it. It was just like maybe to a certain extent plain luck. But had I sent my tape at that time, that would have never happened. Right,
1: right. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, that's
2: good advice. That's good advice. And another and another thing is really that that I mean I have one student who's is, who's is doing PhD with me now, mm-hmm. and um, I always kind of uh, present her as a, as a great example of somebody who uh, has worked in ad agency as a senior art director even and at the same time was moonlighting doing her own illustrations uh, then getting an agent um, and then also being able to uh, make quite a career which is ongoing now as an independent illustrator um, and I think the downside is of course you have to work a lot yeah. but don't put too many barriers in your way by saying okay I can either do this or that yeah. and I have to make that decision in between Option A and Option B. I just sit there waiting. That is not going to work for you.
1: Yeah, it's true. I, I actually uh, I got a little a bit of advice from uh, these two guys who had a small studio, and um, and they were terrific because they were so um, open about their process. You know what I mean? And really um, explained, you know, how they started and what they were doing. Basically, said they said to me, um, you know, look for work everywhere. Like, don't don't ever think like, oh, well, I you know should like d- like. Don't be em- embarrassed about your sources for freelancer. You know what I mean, because it's something that's that's interesting. Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah, they're absolutely. like because you never know who you're gonna you know run across or
2: stumble. Across. I mean, one one of the things is that that um, okay, let's put it that way. First, of course, it's sensible and right that artists should not go below certain rates however on the other side you really have to pick and choose who your client is Mm -hmm. I mean if you would go just you know uh, looking for work from everywhere you know of course you would not uh, charge your um kind of like small shop owner you know from the corner of a street the same amount then you know from coca-cola and then it's kind of like also very very um, reasonable to make a difference there and also to take into account that unless you have a lot of competing offers which are possibly better every kind of work you're doing uh, that is also something for your portfolio and if you're approaching and trying to approach the, every job with the same sincerity, it will also help to build your reputation and it's actually something um, uh, very good to keep that professional attitude throughout I mean, one, I have one funny anecdote which is from a different field it's teaching but it shows the same idea, I think then I started into getting into part-time teaching by the end of the 90s. There was this one class there. I ended up for some reasons, which were actually not even, actually basically nobody's fault, but the class had only three students. <laughs> and then of course, then at the end of the day, you feel okay. That's fun actually. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was fun in the end, you know. But of course, you know. Uh, a a possible reaction would have been to say, okay, I'll be very emotional about it. I, I doubt myself. Why does nobody love me? Why don't they take my class? You know, instead... I really took that on and said, it doesn't matter if I have like three students or 35, I will just really, I mean, 35 is too much anyways, (laughs) Uh, but I will do that class really with the maximum professional effort and make it as good as I can. In in the end, it really turned out fun, you know? So I think it's important to have a certain professional attitude you you apply across fields and you don't make it depending on the size of a job and the size of a budget.
1: That's great <laughs> and who do you who are your favorite animators if you had just to pick a small handful
2: let's think who I could who I could think of um, I mean certainly Eric Goldberg when yes. we look towards towards uh, uh, Disney and kind of like uh, commercial animate because he's just like such a genius in both design and animation and I think that is something. Um, has a little bit to do also what kind of work is is up your your alley and i find the the fluidity the 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 the, of his animation the beauty of a design the 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 perfect simplicity and that is a compliment Mm -hmm. in in that sense uh, i find that just just really admirable um then it comes to independent animation there's so many, uh, I kind of really—it's a—it's—it's it's really hard to think of where to start. I mean, certainly somebody who's amazing. I studied with that, but that's not the reason, is Andreas Vicade from, from, uh, also from Stuttgart, from the same university, and we know each other for a long time, but he's such, uh, really such a fantastic animator, really wonderful animator, and has produced such a, uh, incredible body of work. Then going back, um, uh, to, uh, my school days also Thomas Meyer-Hermann, who is now a producer primarily with Studio Film Builder, also in Germany. But he did a lot of groundbreaking films in the in the 80s in Germany that opened new avenues for for animation, particularly in in Germany. I have to say. Uh, now going to New York, somebody who, who I've always admired for his. Uh, and talking about groundbreaking, of course, for his uh, crazy humor and and uh, very sardonic wit is Bill Plimpton, of course, you know. So uh, and there's there's actually many more when when you go to the classics. Uh, there's John and Faith Hubley, uh, mm-hmm. yes. then who are actually great examples of. Uh, animators or designers, actually he's more of a designer, if you will, who worked with great animators, but he was also somebody who was able to bridge between the world of design and animation in, in a, which were always corresponding, but, uh, some people are more pure animators, some people are more purely designers, and he's, he's, they're, they're great filmmakers, if you think of Moonbird, for example. Um, so, and then, uh, all-time idol also Ward Kimball of Disney's Nine Old Men, <laughs> yeah. because his work, uh, like whistle, whistle, toot, plunk, and boom, you know that is just just one example, but he was somebody who was able to work uh, also at the highest level of quality feature animation but still almost instill an author quality to his work um, within the disney framework yeah so just a few examples yeah, yeah. i can i can mention this. it's just already a thousand more i, I could think yeah. about you it's know so question
1: but is a fun one to answer like once you get going, cause
2: yeah. yeah, I mean, as you keep going, yeah. more and more uh, examples <laughs> come up, you know. I mean, basically, it's also the whole UPA schools and many, many, I mean, like, uh, then uh, 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 the Telltale Heart, you know, Ted, Ted Palmley directed and Paul Julian designed. Uh, that is also an example of uh, great filmmaking because, I mean, there's very limited animation, but it's just like such an amazing, amazing, amazing film. And so, yeah, and then of course, already mentioned Lotte Reiniger huge influence. Generally speaking, I really admire, as you can already guess, uh, filmmakers, animation filmmakers, who can combine design and animation in new and surprising ways and are good at doing so or marvelous at doing so.
1: Have you looked at any of the VR stuff? And and I wonder what you'd say about. Uh sort of the state of things with regard to um, uh, not just CG versus traditional or uh, animation, but some of these newer platforms like um, using motion capture more and using uh, sort of video game, well, motion capture, and then uh, the platform of VR, like what do you, what do you think of, of what, sort of where we are right
2: now? I mean, interestingly, I'm right now just engaging with VR in the sense that I'm just starting to do a project which uh, will, a research project which will Ultimately, result in an animated narrative uh, based on a, a Shakespeare play yes. that might be either uh, *Midsummer Night's Dream* or *The Tempest*. We're still in the process of working with the Shakespeare Institute, trying out different options and so forth. Um, I think what is really, really fascinating is the many, many questions that are really open right now with VR. You know, how do you really tell a story? Right. If you want to tell a traditional story, how do you direct attention? of a viewer and how do you work with uh, challenges like editing mm-hmm. and I think one of the most successful pieces I mean recently Oscar nominated is Pearl yes. uh, that that I think does a pretty good job to to tell a story convincingly in VR but I think this is really just at the, um, the very beginning of a, a kind of like very exciting journey going forward what, but what I kind of... Um, very uh, strongly support is the idea that definitely VR should not only be engaging with certain uh, game design aesthetics in terms of if you think of motion capture of hyperrealism and so forth because I think that is something that... uh, is not at all necessary. I mean, you have all the options in the world what you could do in VR, and I find it even more interesting to do something which is not really um, creating the suspension of disbelief through hyper but putting something which seems to be not real in an environment that makes it appear real. I mean, that's even more, I think, interesting or fascinating instead of simply reverting to the idea and there's many many bad examples i won't mention any <laughs> of course uh there uh the the hyperrealism seems to be the only option to to apply in terms of design style Then you go into vr i think it's much more interesting to do the opposite and if you talk about we talk about the good examples i mean certainly something like Pearl is not hyper-realistic. I mean, that's still highly stylized and uh, it's representational, but it is a really um, a good example of using stylization to c- tell a convincing story in this new reality, if you will.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can only imagine an environment like the one you created uh, in
2: uh, uh, The Cold Heart, in a virtual reality that that would that would be something you know it's that's more the idea where yeah, to go to you yeah. know i mean to do something that is really not the expected right. and find ways to transfer that to a fully immersive world
1: yeah right, because you're already completely immersed yeah, yeah exactly. immediately yeah, uh, um have you played around with
2: tilt brush or, uh, not, coil not, at all? Not, not yet, yeah. Oh, so that's actually, be great. you'll yeah. have to let me know when you yeah, do yeah, this. Yeah. So actually easy. right now, right now is, uh, Right now we're in that stage that we're trying to really figure out what, what Shakespeare play would offer the most potential, you know, also certainly in terms of world building, mm-hmm. in terms of, uh, also finding a way to engage with a story, maybe in non-traditional ways, maybe in traditional ways, but in VR, so that's all at the very beginning, and also finding the, the styles, um, which is, um uh, very very fascinating and we're kind of uh now I just hired the first uh uh kind of animators and uh, visual development artists so that the whole project will start in earnest from April first, actually very soon. Fantastic. And now we we really that was also part of the, the, the conversation with John Kane mm-hmm. because he has actually adapted Shakespeare himself with Bottom Stream. Uh a, a segment from a Midsummer Night's Dream. And uh, it's yeah, so it's it's interesting to do uh, a research on what is there already, and then what could be the new avenues to take the whole the whole spiel to in the end.
1: That is excellent. Yeah, wonderful. This has been
2: a terrific conversation. I really enjoyed it. What I really want to add uh, is that I'm very very happy to see and i hear that a lot from the the animation community as well that uh you're taking on you know the flying the flag of independent (laughs) animation uh so successfully and it's such a such a uh, convincing and very uh committed way in new york city because i mean that's really a great place because i think that might be uh at least one of the capitals of independent animation in the U.S. There are a lot of uh, artistically more challenging, kind of more uh, independent work is being produced. And so I think, and and also sitting in this great space here, (laughs) it's really uh, quite fun to see because I can imagine, and we see it always in the blog, that a lot of people like to come here, enjoy independent animation. And you certainly... Have a community here who can possibly support that.
1: Every, it's energizing, you know, and I think everyone kind of feels that. Um, it, they make you want to, you know, to make more work.
2: <laughs> yeah, ab- absolute. Because I mean, that's always. I mean, at the end of the day, every filmmaker wants their films to be seen.
1: Yeah,
2: and it's always the biggest fun when you when you. Uh, of course, when you see your work resonates with an audience and also on a larger scale, then you see that independent animation, uh, can find audiences and the, the audiences really, uh, respond to what's being shown because usually, I mean, there is such a variety now and such a richness of styles. I mean, on a, on a really global scale that, I mean, it's absolutely no problem to, to put together really wonderful Engaging and beautiful programs.
1: What do you think about uh, like? What's what's your goal? Uh, obviously, everyone, as you said before, we all want to have our films shown for an audience. We want exposure. But um, and and short animated films are really special in that um, you know a lot of times the message is like directly from one person or a small team, and um, and I think there's sort of a, kind of a Artistic integrity that's there that it, uh, in, in those types of projects that exist only in those types of projects. Um, but what about? I mean, do you think there's a way for filmmakers to make any kind of um, money from their short films? Or And what do you think about some of these alternative distribution platforms? And do you put your uh, pieces on, you know, YouTube and, and advertising? You know,
2: like, I'm just curious, like, what your... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I'm very happy to answer that. I mean, actually... Uh, that is still kind of like to a certain extent an open question for me i mean so far um my opinion is almost a little bit split in that so i'm still hesitant to put all my films up there i mean i think there's an ongoing discussion uh in the in the animation community uh uh, about these matters but as far as I know and what I hear largely there is still not a really working model of online distribution which creates uh, substantial revenue so so my question or my answer has to be actually that uh, it depends yeah <laughs> it really depends there you I mean to me it is um, I'm at uh, interesting position or in the interesting situation that I have quite a library of films and I still uh, sell rights uh, very kind of like uh, limited rights for certain purposes for example in Germany the so-called non-commercial rights which are only for the rights which go to libraries schools and so forth and there are special distribution companies and that still generates quite a decent amount of money which and also with the older films which i could not even get if i had everything freely available online so i think um it's a little bit uh, depending on what you want to achieve if you're a, a really young filmmaker who wants to get known in the first place and you really have a piece out there which then you know make makes you um quite popular with larger communities you even might want to build your career on creating an online following maybe that's the right way to go but it also comes with a risk that at the moment there your uh, work is f- completely freely available, it will be difficult to generate any revenue with the more traditional channels because they would probably not go for that Now I understand and I know that that um, the possibilities are diminishing uh, in terms of traditional TV stations and so forth really buying content and you know and also licensing content. But I think we're still in a transitional phase. There, It's not really decided are we going the way of a music industry right. or will there be a kind of uh, sustainable revenue model. And as, as long as this is not decided, as long as I have a substantial catalog of work, um, I really de- decide on a case-by-case basis. Right, right. Now that makes sense. It's an important question. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it, it, I think it's it's uh, it's it also has to do with the time you have at your hands. I think if you are able to invest a really, you know, a good amount of time in keeping your online presence, also maybe building a catalog of merchandise around that, special editions and so forth, uh, doing your own, building your own cottage industry with what some musicians kind of successfully do um then that might be a um possibility for you for me it's it's virtually impossible to even go down that route because i got too many things yeah. i'm doing at the same time that that uh i don't really do that yeah i mean maybe one last uh, comment on this one is that i believe then for f- festivals i think um the overall policies have changed. That is not such a big problem to put a film online. However, I'm also not quite as enthusiastic as others are um, because there are still some festivals like Cannes, mm-hmm. like the Academy Awards, yeah. that this is a no-no. Right. And so, I mean, even though it might seem improbable, you never know right. and you don't want to rob yourself of these possibilities, possibilities mm-hmm. prematurely. So I still keep warn my students against being you know putting it too soon up there right.
1: yeah. well um all right
2: well thank you thank you so much for thank this. you for the opportunity <laughs> that was big fun you yeah, know and just really fun. very enjoyable to be here in the <laughs> place where it all happens it's such a, as i said such a lucky coincidence that that i was or am in new york right now yeah. Um, Yeah, and it's always kind of, it's very, I mean, it's really a a city there as it's not only John Canemaker, it's, you know, other people like Patrick Smith, you know, or Mm, I mean, many, 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 many others. I mean, just, just to name but a few, I mean you. And so like, it's, it's, it's a very vibrant city in terms of animation and also, of course, in terms of design. And so, yeah, it's always a pleasure to come here.
1: If you would like to screen a film with us, please go to our website or check us out on Film Freeway and submit there. If you are in the New York City area, our main screening event is the second Wednesday of every month, and maybe we'll see you there. We're usually at 180 Maiden Lane in the Seaport District of New York City. If you would like to help us out and donate to Animation Nights New York, uh you can find us on Patreon or you can buy us coffee. Everything does help, so if you can swing it, please do and keep supporting independent animation and if you're a filmmaker keep making great work thanks again looking for a way to make quick cash making cash with doordash is super easy guys i love driving around my town and now i can do that and get paid not to mention the sign-up process was so easy download the doordash driver app today to get started
0: Everybody needs just the right amount of fuel to get going in the morning. For some, a nice McDonald's egg and cheese bagel is just enough to do it. Others might prefer a McDonald's bacon egg and cheese bagel. Or or perhaps a sausage egg and cheese bagel. And there are those where nothing will do but a hearty McDonald's steak egg and cheese bagel. Four different breakfast bagels to get you going. Tomorrow morning,
1: give your engine a head
0: start at participating McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba.